0: Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individual and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our Tools and Tips series.
1: Hello and welcome to Codish. I'm Charlie Gleason. I'm a designer and front-end developer at Heroku and at Salesforce. And today I'm joined by Ben Vinegar, the VP of Engineering at Sentry. We're going to be talking a little bit about the new definition of front-end development and what that means. And uh, Ben, maybe you want to give a little bit of background on yourself to kick us off.
0: Sure. And hey, Charlie, thanks for having me here. Uh, I mean, I've been in in software for 15 years. I started actually in graphics driver development. It's kind of my first job where uh, just kind of ripped implementing OpenGL drivers <laughs> and somehow you know walked into a presentation on campus about Ajax and Ruby on Rails and that kind of just totally turned my career on its head. I started getting into web development. You know, from there, building traditional sort of like web applications in PHP and Ruby on Rails. And then kind of like in 2010, I actually made a conscious career decision that, you know, JavaScript and front-end development was really taking off and turning into its own kind of profession and I decided that I would become a specialist. I moved to the Bay Area in 2010 and I interviewed exclusively trying to like bill myself as as a JavaScript engineer. And so from there I kind of did, you know, a lot of JavaScript development and for the past, you know, 4 or 5 years I've been a manager at, at Century.
1: That's great. It's funny cuz I think in 2010 being like billing yourself as a JavaScript engineer now is is a pretty common role potentially to advertise for or to go for, but it feels like thinking back on um, my experience of, of web design in 2010—it was a very different kind of space around the tooling and around how people would kind of pitch themselves.
0: Uh, totally. Listen, I'll, I'll reveal something. You know, like I—I I think I applied for Facebook at, at, at around 2010. I got to the on-site, and you know, one of the interviewers basically told me, you know, they didn't really know how to evaluate me. I was—I was being asked to do some like CSS exercises. You know, float these squares <laughs> on, on a website. Like that's what was expected of me. And that's just kind of you know the, what front-end development kind of meant at the time. It was, it, you know, the language is more of a design-centered role. Didn't get that job. Uh, I eventually worked at a company called Discuss, which, uh, if you're familiar with it, is an embedded commenting platform. You know, It's kind of all over the web. Um, yeah. I used it on my personal blog in 2010. I think a lot of people did. Static websites were coming into vogue. Right? It was a way to get comments on your static website. And in part, I took that job because they were one of the few employers at the time, which was like, here's a here's a product that's entirely embedded JavaScript <laughs> that mm. you deploy on someone's page, and that's how it renders, and that's how all the data gets transmitted back and forth. And that just felt really exciting at the time. There just wasn't a lot of opportunities that were so kind of exclusively JavaScript-focused.
1: Um, so I guess to kick it off, kind of defining front-end development, and that evolution, which I think you kind of touched on there. But I'd love to get your thoughts on where things have come since 2010 and and how things have changed.
0: At the end of the 2000s, I would call myself a, a full stack developer at the time. I was working for a company called FreshBooks. I was writing PHP. I was writing JavaScript. You know, I, I would build the full solution. I would I would write database migrations. I would write SQL queries, and then I'd get into JavaScript world. And I don't think that we used anything beyond jQuery at the time you know you'd, you'd wire things up and you'd have to do like just a lot of a lot of manual munging of DOM elements there wasn't really a lot of tooling at the time and i would say the debugging experience was very painful at the time it was very normal to support internet explorer 6 maybe even 5 at the time mm-hmm. where you know the debugging experience meant that you were limited to writing window.alert and and learning out some values and i think a big part of that is what drove almost like a lot of dismissiveness around JavaScript development or or front development, mostly because no one wanted to touch it. You know, my Mm. experience was that this was just so painful (laughs) that no one wanted to work on that. That's the reason that it was, I felt that if people dismissed it, it was because of that. Right. And I had an opposite take. I had a contrarian take, which is, wow, this is so hard. No one wants to touch it. This is an opportunity for me to become really good at this. (laughs) Um, Mm. So, you know, when I talk about 2010, you know, you're talking about the the field in its infancy, and I kind of want to be at the forefront of that. So, you know, 2010, I feel like at this point, maybe even 2009, 2008, you know, Firebug was probably the tool that, that changed the game, hmm. where now you can have a debugging experience in the browser, I can step through lines of code, I can inspect variables for what value they are at this running state, right? I, I feel like that's what, turned it from hacking (laughs) into a real software engineering profession. And then from there, you know, the tools evolved. We got Backbone as sort of one of the first popular, you know, single-page app development libraries or frameworks. Um, And then, you know, from there, Angular and Ember kind of emerged again, I want to say 2012. You know, all those tools really just kind of, you know, sort of like leveled the playing field in the sense that now software developers had all these tools um, and all these frameworks and all these patterns that, you know, made it more approachable, <laughs> um, offered a lot of the tools that many people who are doing back development were used to. Um, and I should also offer up the browser landscape, of course, changing once we all accepted that maybe we didn't have to support any old versions of Internet Explorer anymore. And browsers got on this sort of, you know, automatic release model that also kind of, you know, really made things less frustrating and more pleasant and kind of, I think, attracted a lot of people to the field.
1: Yeah, and I think one thing as well, acknowledging like everyone's favorite elephant in the room, the implications of um, Flash support on mobile had a really profound impact on what business could get behind in terms of what they'd support. And in my past life, I was in um, advertising, which I think has a lot to answer for around the things in Flash that were maybe its less desirable traits like uh, being incredibly bandwidth hungry and, and all those kinds of things. But I think I remember being um, in a massive out urgency at the time that Steve Jobs wrote that letter about Flash and, and why um, the iPhone would never support it. And it was like a kind of a groundswell of then um, internally people looking for ways, like having this, this device in their pockets creative directors and, and the like who had these devices in their pockets were like, but I want to be able to do this thing and I don't understand why I can't do it on my phone now.
0: You know, I, I didn't come from that background, right? I came from sort of the other side, but you're, you're totally right. Those experiences that were being built in Flash, you know, I've probably not thought enough about how that's led to, um, you know, desire to have all that din- dynamic behavior and, and flexibility in the browser, which has led to so many of the APIs that exist today, Canvas, <laughs> Remembering that we didn't even have SG- SVGs in browsers right? <laughs> for for a while.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think people talk about Flash in a really negative way, but I have super fond memories of it. Like, ActionScript three was was a wild language when you were starting out. It had like Java esque um, qualities. It was really forgiving in some ways. It was like I don't know. I yeah, it's 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 a funny trip down memory down memory lane. Maybe it'll come back. Maybe it'll be like cassettes, and everyone'll be like, "I built my website on vinyl," you know, like ActionScript three. It's coming back.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is always that sort of cyclical nature of things. I think, like a lot of um, you know, JavaScript developers who've been around for a long time, uh, you know, what is that uh, that that expression people say? Like, oh, Dojo already had this, um, or, or maybe MooTools already had this. You know, especially around. I think Dojo had like yeah. you know, Dojo and YUI had all this bundler support in the, in the mid or even late two thousands. That, we, that we've reinvented over and over again. And I know, that, I know that ActionScript developers have the same attitude about like, hey, I, I can do all this stuff a decade ago. You're, you're just catching up to the power that we already had in browsers.
1: <laughs> One thing I was going to say as well, in terms of that evolution, I think um, Backbone was such a, at least for me personally, but in terms of looking at the landscape of front-end development Backbone felt like such a breakthrough in the sense that no longer like, I think you talked a little bit about having jQuery and you kind of touching different parts of the DOM in a way that was very manual. And then all of a sudden Backbone kind of allowed you just to bind these things together and things happened and it felt kind of magical and abstracted those things away. So you could focus on the experience or focus on whatever data you were trying to manage or deal with or display.
0: I think the Backbone is to javascript as ruby on rails was to you know php development at the time. Hmm. So I started web development in rails. I don't know the exact version but this was maybe like 2006. And you know my experience up to that time was like okay I can do I can use cgi bin I can I can call a script and return something. Hmm. Right? And it was really hard for me to envision what was even possible with that. You know I I'd, I'd, I'd walk through php bb code, you know, of sort of like larger PHP projects. And it was just such a tangle that it was really just hard to wrap my head around.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: Ruby on Rails presented this model that I think was very clean, right? The you know, MVC model that I could reason about. Now I could I could picture applications that I could build. And similarly, Backbone, again, uh, probably the only architecture that I had is that I used closures and didn't leak global variables, you know, as far as um, <laughs> what I was doing in JavaScript in the late 2000s. But there was no you know, what was the architecture of that? I think it was really just a bunch of function calls right? and trying to, just trying to encapsulate things as best as you could. And then Backbone was like, hey, you can think about front-end development in the, in the same way that you've kind of thought about MVC on the server. And so in a similar way, I feel like um, the possibilities opened up, the profession kind of opened up. We could use software architecture patterns <laughs> that people have been using elsewhere forever in a way that made sense in JavaScript world. So I do think it was... Backbone certainly deserves a, a place in front end development's history for, for that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then you can kind of see that evolution from what Backbone had had started through Angular all the way to React in the future. What do you think about that evolution leading up to today?
0: I think that the the evolution has been good. Um, backbone was so universal. Like, truly, I, I think it was, it really was a backbone. And I think that everybody who's building on Backbone, you know, They used it as the skeleton that they sort of, you know, then wrote their own hand-rolled code on. (laughs) So um, it may have provided 60%, maybe probably less. And I think that a lot of people looked at that and said, hey, we can go further. We We can have a more opinionated framework that provides a lot more scaffolding, that provides a lot more tooling so that people don't have to make so many of these decisions for themselves. And I think that's where Ember and Angular kind of came from. In terms of kind of providing that full experience, of being a little bit more like Ruby on Rails, or Django, or something like that, and everything's been an evolution from there. You know, React introduced this render model that was just made things so easy, and you know that was sort of another paradigm change. I would say like one of the largest paradigm changes in the sense that you know everybody has adopted the, that sort of virtual DOM rendering, uh, you know, data binding mm-hmm. technique that mm-hmm. has just made things easier. And that, you know, we're talking like from 2010 to 2015. You know, so if you think about that five-year gap or that five-year length of time where we went from jQuery to Backbone to Angular, Ember, React, I can understand how the attitude of many developers or observers of, of what's going on in front of the world are just like, wow, this community cannot keep its head straight. There's, there's something new all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I actually felt that React was going to be around for a long time. I've got some tweets out there that back this up. But uh, because my feeling was that each of these frameworks had really offered something new. And until we see what the next kind of big leap is or the next innovation is, you know, the community is maturing. A lot of, the, a lot of companies have adopted these platforms and they're not interested in shuffling technologies every two years. There's no appetite for it. And so as the, as the sort of like industry and the profession matures, There's just sort of a gravitation to holding on to things and trying to like make them better. The idea that Ember adopted the React kind of render model and they introduced this Glimmer engine, I think is indicative. It's like, hey, we don't need to go and create a whole new framework for this. Let's just take the good ideas that React introduced and bring them into what we do. And so that was kind of the path forward. You know, I think that there's still an opportunity for another big paradigm change. But until we see that, I don't know that we're going to have everyone roll over onto a whole set of frameworks again. I think that there is kind of a, a level of entrenchment, maybe, and people are pretty happy. I think people are pretty satisfied. The tools have evolved really well, probably because of also corporate sponsorship, <laughs> where you know Facebook yeah. manages React, Google manages Angular. You know, we didn't have that a decade ago. The tooling has been as good as it's ever been, uh, which may be a incendiary topic for some who, who you know harken back to this time when, boy, I wish I could just put a JavaScript file on a on a HTML page. But um, I'm really satisfied, and I think it's great.
1: Yeah, and I think as well, I mean, I, I really love seeing that evolution to this point because so many of these tools have borrowed from the ones before, and the level of complexity is ultimately up to the developer. Like, you can get Angular and Vue-like attribute directives using Alpine JS, or you can get um, all the way through to fully-fledged content management through like Nuxt view and uh, view content. Like there's a heap of options now that are almost more tailored to the kind of application that you're building rather than potentially this one size fits all, like whatever you're building, you're using jQuery or whatever you're building, you're using whatever the flavor was at that window of time. But I definitely relate to feeling, um, a certain amount of frustration during that, the uncertainty of, making those tools better like i think angular was a good example that in its earlier version there was factory services and they were all sitting on top of providers but there wasn't really that many differences and so there became a lot of uncertainty in the community and you can kind of see that a little bit now in the response to maybe hooks like when hooks first came out uh, for react there was a feeling of like or i felt like there was a, a swell of people maybe pushing back and being not frustrated but Uncertain about how much they need to learn this, oh, how yeah. relevant this was going to be.
0: So, I got an anecdote to share about this. I, I think that there's a there's a perception that yeah, that the, the the JavaScript world is just spinning so fast; I need to be constantly learning. I, I just don't personally think it's really any different than any other community or or sub community of of programming as a profession. Uh, when I was in college, I worked part time at a bookstore, a big box bookstore in uh, downtown Toronto and I worked in the business section where the computer books were. And I was a computer science student at the time. Uh, you know, I would talk to people buying books, buying programming books, stack overflow didn't really exist <laughs> at this point in time. So people were still getting most of their knowledge from books when I, when I was mm-hmm. doing computer, when I was doing graphics programming at the time, I had these big thousand page textbooks basically to teach me direct X and OpenGL and so on. And I, I have this memory I've never forgotten of somebody coming in, you know, an older gentleman, may, may have been late 30s, who was just picking up a stack of .NET books, which had come out recently. And he was just grumbling aloud to me, you know, just just the, about what he felt were undue requirements on him to have to constantly learn new things. <laughs> hmm. sure. I, I think he was a Java developer and, you know, like, oh, you know, we're, we're exploring .NET right now.
1: Yeah I think I mean that's the thing right ultimately if you try to keep right on the cutting edge there'll definitely be things that drop by the wayside like there was a tweet you wrote uh, in May that was saying that in January you spent three hours trying to convert your personal website to JS, and then you asked yourself what am I doing uh, uploaded an index.html file and called it a day and it's <laughs> like definitely tongue-in-cheek but also like very true, because I think sometimes the the anxiety comes from feeling like we're being left behind. But absolutely, uh, you're solving a problem, and I think um, someone replied. I don't read this as a knock on Gatsby or any tool, but instead the oft um, underappreciated skill of pragmatism that is honed over years of getting stuff done in spite of potentially shiny distractions. Which I thought was such a great way of thinking about this. What could be a wall of possibility is actually just options, and you can choose to take them or leave them, depending on the organization that you work for or the things that get you um, interested. Ultimately, work should be something enjoyable, and if there's a tool that really doesn't feel right, then that's not a bad thing.
0: I think your comment about being left behind is totally right. And if I'm going to bring it back to my uh, bookstore anecdote, you know, the concern that this fellow had was Java wasn't going to be good anymore. Mm. <laughs> and here we are. Uh, by the way, Java is still the, you know, one of the biggest programming languages. You know, he would have been just fine. Yeah. But I, I, I think that that anxiety, you know, that was like, wow, .NET is big. It's got Microsoft behind it. That was kind of the attitude at the time.
1: So for me personally, I was thinking about Grid because I started trying to use CSS Grid for this project. And I realized just how many gaps there were in my knowledge because my career has changed to be less potentially less hands-on at times. Um, How deep I need to be into new technologies has changed based on some of the things that I work on. Like, just things have changed. And um, I was looking at uh, Una Kravitz has posted 10 modern layouts in one line of CSS um, as part of uh, web.dev. And I was looking at it, and it's like 10 small snippets of information that made me feel a thousand times more confident about grid because it's it's like cool this is what this is doing here's some examples and all of a sudden it kind of alleviated that so I think the amount of information that's available can be overwhelming but it also means that there are more and more um, ways to kind of get up to speed even if you feel like you've potentially not uh, right at the forefront, like you can find something that maybe gives you some context or helps you better
0: understand it.
1: And I think that's true of the leaps that design have made has made on the front end as well.
0: I'd agree. I'll, I'd even throw out like a suggestion to folks who are suffering from this anxiety. I have like a personal rule, which is when I hear about something that's new, I'm going to wait a year. <laughs> I'm going <gonna, laughs> to wait a year, see how it shakes out and then check it out. Even though I'm in management and I I have very little to say about, about the architecture of the application today, but I like to understand a little bit about where we're going. You know, hooks. I took a look at that for the first time a few weeks ago. We built a React application. I think that, you know, again, people chase shiny things. It's exciting. It is inherently exciting. But if you're concerned about I need to know this stuff, right, well, sometimes things just actually fritter away a year, <laughs> a year from now, right? Mm. Um, some things don't get that kind of critical mass of, of mindshare, or adoption and, you know, I want, I just want to be on the other side of that discussion or I would burn out personally.
1: Yeah, and if you want to be in that discussion, it's there for you, right? And I think that's the most exciting thing that as an industry, one one really great example I've noticed is um, in interviews, uh, it's much less common in my experience to focus on what's your public GitHub activities, like what things do you have out there? What, what do you spend your weekend working on? Because ultimately not everyone has, um, for whatever reason, personal, familial. Uh,
0: you I would know. say the majority of people don't have. Yeah. But I think that, you know, the people that we follow, we're shaped by people who do, mm. right? And so that can create warped perceptions of the industry. Mm. Um, you know, if the people that you hear on Twitter or who are retweeted or, you know, you're watching their YouTube videos. They're frequently those people. And also, in in many cases, they're literally paid to be at the forefront, right? This is why I bring up developer advocacy again. And so they don't have the same relationship with work as I think the gross majority of software developers. Mm. So I think that's just something to keep in mind. Now, if you want to be there, (laughs) to your point, all this stuff is there, but it's okay to not be. And I think that most of us aren't.
1: Yeah, I think it's comforting as well because then when you do find something that you're really passionate about as well, you can consciously make the choice to pursue that and potentially write about it or share it. And so I think that kind of fundamental joy of education and web development, which to me has always been at the forefront is still available to me. It's just that I can now pick and choose the things that I choose to write about or that I choose to give my time to, and that's healthy, right? That's like a good a good thing
0: <laughs> absolutely, yeah, um
1: so yeah, so I kind of touched on design a little bit, and I'd love to kind of talk a little bit about that as well, how design has changed. I think I mentioned grid is a great example, but you talked a little bit about um that browsers have kind of moved away from these really I feel a little bit like theres could be really young people listening, and I'm talking like back in the old days. <laughs> but it was the case where like a browser had a set of capabilities and it was there for a long, long, long time and you learned how to move around that. But these days, now that browsers update automatically, things, features are added um, over time, uh, things are kind of rolled out pretty constantly to uh, pre-release um, Chrome Canary or um, Firefox Nightly, things like that. It does feel like there are a lot of new opportunities and ways to approach design on the web and I, I think that's a really exciting thing
0: but it can be
1: you know um, there has been a big evolution there
0: so if I look at you know our front end engineering team of which I'd say there's maybe maybe seven people on our engineering team who would who would classify themselves that way it runs a, a full gamut of people who are, are really interested in the internals of, of kind of javascript and the, and the classes and the architecture to the experience right I would also add that even our design team, most of our design team are hands-on implementers. They're writing CSS and JavaScript, for example. They're doing designs in Figma and often implementing them as well. Mm. So that's true. I think that the idea of a designer as somebody who just hangs out in Photoshop all day, okay, they're probably not using Photoshop anymore, but I think it's kind of going away a little bit because now part of the design is also the experience. And to understand what is possible with the experience, you kind of need some knowledge of what is possible in the browser, what, what, what is exposed to you so that you can bring that experience to life. Right? Mm. Design has moved more into front end development, I think, in parts so that we can just create really good experiences, right? It's going back to action script. <laughs> it's, um, that type of work is, is in front end development now.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that the, the value of even if you're not necessarily sitting there writing out um, components and the interactions, at least from a design point of view, both the tooling and kind of um, the maturity of it as a discipline means that having that understanding of how your designs will be used is so important. Like yes. UX, I think UX back in 2010, I remember I used to attend a um, UX book club which was at the time kind of a new field. It wasn't uh, necessarily something that was as commonly talked about or or focused like it is. It's such a huge focus now, which is so great because I think a lot of the time uh, it was the case where you would design something in Photoshop in many, many layers, and then you would hand it over to someone who had the um, unenviable task of trying to decipher what that actually meant in code and what was maintainable. And you had this real disconnect between what you or your client or a product manager um, was anticipating would come out at the other end and what was actually technically possible. Whereas uh, these days, I think the relationship that Figma and Sketch have to code is so defined and so at the forefront that it's almost impossible not to consider how these things um, will work in, in code. And I think it means that we're all so much more Uh, literate about um, the things that we're creating and the, the idea of uh, designers and developers is blurring in a way where the best of each can kind of combine to make something greater than the sum of their parts, I guess. Uh, Yeah. I just find it a really exciting shift in the way that we
0: think about and talk about front end development. Totally agree. You know, here's another one also is uh, design systems and tools like storybook where you create your own sort of internal, you know, components agreed upon design language. And there's just a lot of tools to facilitate that now Mm. that, you know, I know that we have those things. And so if you have an engineer, who's maybe a little bit less design literate, they can create an experience that's pretty on brand, right? They can, they can take you 90% there with the components that exist. Like they can make good choices. They can look at the patterns that already exist in the application and apply that to what they're building. And so in some ways, designers are also turning into architects of their own. That's the other thing I'm seeing, where it's it's just just as programmers, you know, are, are build reusable components everywhere, you know, in mm-hmm. in software. I, I feel that we we've entered an era where designers, really, really technically fluent design teams are creating effectively reusable components, often in the framework itself, right? Not just here's here's a a mock-up of what this should look like, but actually here is the component, right? And these are reusable and shareable. Here's the layout components, et cetera. They're very, like the, the work that they're doing now is, is really high leverage.
1: Yeah, and it feels, I mean, I'm, I've am i been really lucky to work on design tooling um, at Salesforce in my time there. And I just, it's such an exciting, interesting space. And I love this um, crossover between what design tooling can offer um, and how it's taking from some of the engineering um, ideas and pieces. For example, um, abstract giving the concept of branches to design files so that two designers can be branching in a kind of Git-esque way and then merging things back together. And then how components, like you say, can be built within the framework um, with the intent of Uh, their kind of final final destination and how they're going to be used rather than being kind of separated from that.
0: So it's a, Mm, yeah, it feels good. It's a continuing evolution, right? If if we began this kind of conversation talking about how just a lot of these tools didn't even exist in, in JavaScript development. And then they kind of emerged and just sort of like continuing up the stack, as it were, to the design space where everybody's programming now. I'm going to say that also (laughs) on the the debate of is HTML and CSS programming? Yes, it is. Just everything's boring the whole way.
1: You know, I think in terms of one thing I was going to ask about uh, what skills do define wider front end development. Um, They're kind of some of them, but uh, are there other things that should be kind of in mind when we talk about this idea of a new definition?
0: Yeah. A new definition. You know, even something we talk about internally at Century, and I don't know if this is true for other companies, but even though we've talked about front-end development moving towards even you know, more and more design, <laughs> we even talk about it on the server. And I, and I say that because now sort of like the backend components are being just so abstracted away. If I want to build a server endpoint and I'm, I'm traditionally a JavaScript developer, like we've, we've just expanded those tools so much, right? Now, I mean, in, in, in a serverless world or, or cloud world, I don't have to think about, you know, how many, how many metal servers or Apache instances I need, right? end of the day, like I think software engineers, software developers, you can only hold so much things in your head. True. <laughs> right? True. And the notion of a full stack developer, I think is becoming more real because we're abstracting away a lot of the sort of like the backend stack. And to build a product, to build a really good product, you do need to go up and down the stack. You do need to write. You need to understand how the server kind of like generates responses and how you mm-hmm. can use that to create good experiences on the client. So, um, you know, I mentioned that we have friend, engineers at Century, but we have a philosophy that nobody owns a code base. You know, you do whatever you need to do to be successful. If you want to jump in and write some Python on our, on our server backend, because you're trying to build that experience. Absolutely. And so, you know, maybe full stack is, is, is becoming like more of a real profession. It's gotten a bad rap as, as, a, as an endless list of responsibilities, right? Of a, of a <laughs> unicorn person. But with, with the way that things are trending with tools, I think it's becoming more realistic. Now, if I want to pivot a little bit and say, you know, because I, 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 I am a hiring manager and we've hired a lot of people, I do think that product sense is a, is a really undervalued skill in front of development. Mm. Um, and maybe this speaks to the sort of like, you know, uh, bending a little bit more towards design, but people who are really, really do want to build great experiences, right? We want people who are more interested in in the outcome of a good experience and thinking about what's the best way to get there rather than someone who's, um, thinking a little bit more, I need to build things in a certain way to feel satisfied about the outcome of, of, of what I have.
1: Yeah, I think you really hit on something there, that that ultimately, when we look back, the tools have come such a long way, but there is still this, this core underlying uh, value to what is the experience, what is, what are you trying to communicate? What goal does your user have in mind? All of these things are kind of tool agnostic, right? You
0: yeah, I mean, if I could even give an example right now, you know, so we have a, an older Flux library, and like many people, we look at Redux and sort of you know popular evolutions of that of that Flux pattern in our SARF architecture. But the way that we approach it is, you know, are we going to adopt this because we're told uh, the, the the community is communicating to us that this is popular and everybody just builds it this way. Mm. Or are we going to achieve something new? And when we do talk about it, there is there, there are genuine outcomes that we would get from adopting the technology by adopting Redux or something else. But that's what's driving the decision, right? Mm. Maybe we want better control over our stores because we want to like avoid refetches on pages, right? Which is hampering the experience, and that's what's going. That's another example of something that we look back and we're like, yeah, we're going to get that from this. So, you know, let's invest more. Those are the real conversations that take place within a company. Um, At least that's my experience. Um, And I hope so for many companies, right? Not how do I get off of this old stack or how do I get on to this new thing? But we have a requirement of the product to really serve our customers in a great Mm -hmm. way. So what are the tools that are available that are going to get us there?
1: Well, I think that's a great place to finish off because ultimately, that's that's the biggest thing, right? What what does this do for the customer, Ben? I want to thank you so much for joining me. Um, I do want to though take a moment to recommend that everyone listening checks out um, Sentry.io, which is uh, an open source cloud based error and monitoring tool. Um, and if you only look at it for one reason, it should be uh, because it's probably my favorite homepage and marketing experience on the internet at the moment and I've referred to it many many times Uh, and I really want you to introduce me to whoever designed those buttons Um, Ben Vinegar thank you so much for joining me on Codish it's been an absolute pleasure
0: thanks John it's been great thanks for joining us for this episode of the Codish podcast Codish is produced by Roku the easiest way to deploy manage and scale your applications in the cloud If you'd like to learn more about Kodish or any of Heroku's podcasts, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.